The title of the message is giving, Given Every Spiritual Blessing in Christ. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I hopped on a plane to Southern California. It was right after our Sunday morning service. Um, I was headed down to be a part of the 25th anniversary of the Harvest Crusades. My good friend, oh, we're going to bring that up a little bit. My good friend, Greg Laurie, <laughs> uh, Greg Laurie was preaching at Anaheim Stadium. Um, and it had been just this phenomenal week uh, because that Tuesday, our our second grandchild was born, so we were already down there, and Stephanie was helping, uh, and we all were with little Greg, and uh, things while, whilst our, our uh, daughter-in-law was in the hospital giving birth and things. Which, right, let me show you a picture, actually. Uh, okay, you probably already saw it. Now, that's Greg, uh, number three to the left, and that's our new addition to our family. That's John right there. See him there? He's just a month old. Okay, I... Hey, look, I'm a grandparent. I got to slip it in somehow, right? Uh, these pictures of grandkids. All right, so we can put that, make that go away now. Okay, thanks. So anyways, it had just been a wonderful week. And um, so I, I flew back home to, and taught Sunday morning. Uh, and then I went back and, because the family was down in Southern California. Now, now I was going down to a Harvest Crusade. And generally when I board a Southwest flight to Los Angeles, Here's what it kind of looks like. You know, I have my backpack. Um, I'm boarding the plane, probably listening to music. And in my backpack, I have my Bible. I have some notes to write on, and I have my computer because usually I'm just working on that flight and, you know, preparing some message, and it goes by really fast and things. But this time, and it was just right after, you know, service, I, I hadn't eaten anything, so I grabbed a sandwich, and I sat down, no one's sitting in my row, and I, I just did not feel like uh, working, you know. I was just letting down and just savoring a beautiful week, and I found myself looking out the window, which, was, which I rarely do, and I was just mesmerized by the views. I mean, the, we, the flight pattern took us over Malibu, and I'm just looking down, the beautiful Malibu. I'm looking for Bob Dylan, you know. I'm saying, there he is somewhere, you know. Um, and and to, the, you know, to the left, you know, you, now you start seeing L.A., and you're, in the, you're in the harbor there of L.A., and, and I'm looking for LAX, and, you know, because I, I remember on an LA, uh, LL flight, you know, flying in from the ocean, landing from the ocean side. I'm trying to think, where's the runway? And, oh, there it is, and... And surely there would be a lot of planes around, you know, LAX, and I, I, I couldn't see them. And then I began to spot them, and they looked really small in the sky. And then I, I saw my old stomping grounds. I grew up in Palos Verdes in Southern California, beautiful peninsula. I saw the beach where I'd spent so much time. Started to kind of hone in, like, where I lived on the hill. And I, I can't say I exactly saw the house, but we lived near a public golf course. I could see... The, you know, the grass, and so I knew kind of where, it, where my old house was, and then, and then it began to turn, and y- y- I was enjoying all the boats to and fro from Catalina. We got closer to Orange County, we flew over the stadium that the Harvest Crusade's going to be in, and I'll just say something, I was, I was just enjoying the vantage of being up in the air looking down and it was an absolutely beautiful day. I mean, being thousands of feet above the ground gives you a wonderful perspective. Now, similarly, this is what the book of Ephesians does for a Christian. It provides 
this heavenly perspective of actually who the Lord is and who you are in Christ. And in doing so, it provides a much more accurate view of your life. Did you hear that? It's like what actually Ephesians does, particularly the first couple of chapters, is it gives us a a totally different vantage on reality. It gives us a much more accurate picture of actually reality. Um, It gives us a picture of the Lord from heavenly perspective. It gives us a picture of who actually you are in Christ. And therefore, it gives us a much more accurate picture of who we really, really are. And you know what the alternative is? The alternative is a very limited and even inaccurate view of our life. I mean, the difference is as big as having your outlook on life as if you're stuck on a freeway versus the vantage of being 18,000 feet above the ground. You remember last week that our first point was that you can't have the right application for life without the right belief, without the right doctrine, without the right foundation in your life. How many of you remember that point that we made? And, 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 we, and we started actually last week, even though we studied verse one and two, we started in chapter four of Ephesians because in principle, the book teaches us that, that very point, that we can have the right application because chapter four, five, and six of the book of Ephesians addresses how to communicate and what love looks like and how to reconcile and, 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 and how God builds his church to impact the generation and, and ultimately what a husband and wife looks like and what family looks like and how to stand against evil, all of those things. And the reality is we can't get it right in those areas, those very important areas, unless unless we have the right information, unless we have the correct beliefs, unless we have the right foundation in life. So the point is, you really can't be right in four, five, and six in your life unless you get one, two, and three, i.e. the chapters one, two, and three. And we, we address that. And, and yet we noted that such ideas are not gonna win a popularity contest because we live in a culture that actually devalues creeds it devalues beliefs. It emphasizes deeds. It's like, man, just do the right thing type of a thing. And, and yet we flushed out the illogicalness of that. Because if someone says to you, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, well, that's a belief statement in and of itself. What they are telling you is it's important to believe. It doesn't matter what you believe, right? I mean, it's very difficult to get away from the value of, of, of what the importance of what is informing your life. And if someone says, well, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're kind and you're just, kind of like Thomas Jefferson, we quoted him last week. Well, I mean, you're basing the value of being kind and just on something, right? And ultimately, what we learn is that there's no basis actually for right and wrong without God. Because the alternative would be that there's no creator, no moral governor of the universe, which means then that we are at best educated beefsteak inspired by imaginations which are driven by chemicals in our body. And what Ephesians does, we're gonna gonna get into it a little bit, what Ephesians is brilliant. What what the Lord is doing through Paul is like, he he is giving us the foundation of truth and, and what reality really is in chapter one, two, and three, particularly chapter one, that needs to be the very foundation of our life. Otherwise, we're not going to get the right application for our life. How many of you are tracking with me on that right there? I mean, look, 
How we think, what we think, super important. And I just want to comment a few more things on this before we look at the verse. A few years ago, I heard a lecture from the president of Dartmouth to the effect that the message was that he wanted to do his best as the president of Dartmouth, and these are my words, okay, I'm going to kind of boil down his message, to kind of bust an ethnocentric outlook in his students. He, he wanted them to think outside of America. He, you know, because the world is bigger than America, McDonald's and football and stuff, he wanted to get in, into the mind and, and look through the lens of other cultures because in doing so, it's going to force his students to think differently. It's going to force you to think differently. In doing so, you're going to end up evaluating your own beliefs, perhaps in a different way. And in addition, it's going to make them more compassionate, understanding human beings, and they're then going to see the world full of opportunity for business to help meet legal and humanitarian needs and so forth. Because after all, we're, we're all coming from some vantage, some perspective. You know, we're all coming from some corner of the world and, or in our mind that, that is often, often has these blind spots and we're not seeing as accurately as we could. I mean, Elizabeth Elliot tells the story. She was a missionary to the Aachen Indians, and she tells the story that she wanted them to rethink one of their customs. So she introduced the handkerchief, you know. She wanted them to rethink how they dealt with their cold, how... Okay, this is kind of gross, but how they blew their nose. You know, she wanted them to rethink that, right? So she's just like, she was gross by how they did it. So she's like, okay, look, we have such a thing as a handkerchief. And um, the, the, the Indians end up asking, well, wh- wh- what do you do with the handkerchief after using it? And Elizabeth said, well, I put it back in my purse and in my pocket. And they said, do you mean you, you don't touch your fingers with, you know, your nose type of thing, but then you save what comes out of your nose and you carry it around with you? Oh, how civilized is that, you know? So uh, here's the thing. She goes to another culture, she's thinking, I want to like to change them, but it's like their customs in, end up impacting the way she thinks about her own thinking. Now, look, our generation has major blind spots. And I think they're even getting bigger because we're the selfie generation. We're the generation, the camera is on ourself, self, 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 self. I want to show you a bunch of pictures. It's such a, it, I mean, sociologists, psychologists are telling us that the millennials are like this narcissistic culture. Thing is, it creates a major blind spot if we're if our outlook is based merely upon a human perspective, and the focus is killing us. I mean, the questions that drive our priorities and values and lifestyles is, hey, is this convenient for me? Is this comfortable? Or is it going to take me out of my comfort zone because I don't, I don't want to do it if it's going to take me out of my comfort zone? It's going to make me happy. Um, and last but not least, what consumer value does this have for me? Me, 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 I, I, self, self, self. But Ephesians chapter one breaks the selfie mentality, so to speak. And it turns the camera around to the Lord. And it's like, what's gonna be wonderful for the next three weeks or four even is that we're not gonna think about ourselves so much. We're gonna be having our focus upon him. 
which, which as a result is going to give us a whole lot more accurate view of who we really are because every Christian is actually in Christ. It's like we're thinking, you know, is it convenient? Is it going to make me happy? The Lord's thinking, I want you to think more. Is it true? Does it align with the reality of what it means to be in the Lord Jesus? So I said all of that because let me just share something. In verse three, go back to verse three. Paul is like, he's caught up from, you know, in this incredible view. He's like, he's seeing life from the plains, so to speak. And he takes us along with him. And as I noted last week, verse three through four in the original language, in the Greek, is actually this one long sentence that explodes with these incredible realities in Christ. And what we have in beginning of verse three down to verse 14, you guys, is that foundation that the Lord wants our life built on. That without which, we're not gonna get the right application for our life. Let me just share what we're going to do this morning. We're going to study verse 3. But, and that's all. Because it's so weighty. I mean, every word, every phrase is like tonnage of meaning. And what I'm going to try to do is we're going to zoom in, kind of like, you know, if we're in the pl- on the plane looking from a totally different perspective of who the Lord is, who we are in Christ, we're going to like, like dive down and, zoom in on particular ideas, but then go back up and then zoom in and zoom out and zoom in so we don't miss what is, 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 is being communicated, actually. We don't miss the big picture. So let's break this down. Look at that first word there, blessed. In the Greek, it's a very interesting word because behind it is the idea praised with worshiping love. I mean, blessed be, he says, blessed be the God and, what's the next word, you guys? Father. So he's saying, hey, look, this worshiping love is actually directed to the heavenly Father. It's like, okay, he he made us, he created us, but now he's recreated us in Christ and he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, but but it's coming from the Father. And actually, in verse 17, it reads, that he is the father of glory. So Paul is like, oh my goodness, I'm just so enraptured. This is awesome. I mean, blessed be the father praised with worshiping love. This is directed to the heavenly father. Later in chapter three, Paul bows his knees, he says, to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, behind the gospel is a father. And he's just the most wonderful father there ever could be. I mean, it could be said like the father thought this great plan of salvation. Jesus bought it. The Holy Spirit brought it. Deep down inside, we're all longing for relationship with the heavenly father. We're all longing to get back to the garden of Eden, if you will. I mean, here's the two main philosophies of life, both of which lead to major disillusionment. I'm either going to go through life playing by the rules, being a good person, paying my taxes, going to school, doing my homework, and, and all the while, kind of, you know, all the while there's this certain expectation of how my life should actually pan out because I've done it the right way. So it's kind of a conservative mindset, or I'm going to go through life, just forget all of that. I'm going to make up the rules as I go, splurge, do whatever I want, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Both paths lead to major disillusionment. They never deliver what, deliver what you hope they would. And the reason is, is because at the core we were made 
to have relationship with the one who made us. And Paul is just saying, man, blessed be the God and Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the, someone tell me, Father, except it be through me. Listen to this, Galatians 4, 6. You are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into your heart, and the spirit calls out Abba, Father. It's like, in Jesus, you got new DNA. You've been born again of the spirit. You got biological DNA, but now you got spiritual DNA. Now you have this relationship with the Almighty as, well, in, in, as, as a son to a father. He is the heavenly father. And in Christ, the basis of your relationship is unconditional love. Now the next phrase reminds us of the importance of biblical theology, you guys. Because he says in verse three, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait a second, does Jesus have a God? I mean, is that what this is saying? How can Jesus have a God when he is the Son of God, the second person in the triune nature of God? There's only one God. I told you this is like really weighty. I mean, there's tonnage of meaning here. So let's, let's wrap our minds around. The Bible tells us that God became a man. He lowered himself. He took upon himself certain limitations. One person said Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity and divine by nature, worshiped God the Father as a good Jew who was under the law. Remember, Jesus had humbled himself, emptied himself in the incarnation. So it's almost like you have Almighty God who's like this you know, really complex Mozart symphony reducing himself to a three-chord country song. I've said that a billion times. But that's like the brilliance and the awesomeness of the Almighty because he, he, he who, who lowers himself, puts upon himself limitations to communicate with us, to reach out to us. And the person says, cooperating with the limitations of being a man while acting under Jewish law. Also, Jesus is still a man. And will be a man forever. And therefore, it can be said that Jesus, the man, had someone he would call his God. And his was a reference to the Father. And since he will always be a man as well as divine, he will always have someone he will call his God. But this is in reference to God the Father. That does not mean that Jesus does not share the same divine nature as God the Father, since the Bible says that Jesus is also God made man. What we have going on here is praise and adoration and esteem to the Father because he has, in verse 3, he has blessed us with, with, what's the next word, you guys? With every spiritual blessing. Listen, I mean, that word every is a lot. And we're just beginning to, to scratch the surface this morning as to what that means. But let me just say this. You are much more wealthy and secure and empowered than you may think you are. I mean, just to try to illustrate, like, hey, man, you've already been given, like, so much. Uh, have you experienced it? Yes and no. 
Are, are you going to grow in the experience and understanding of it? Yes. I mean, in fact, Paul later on in this very chapter in verse 16 through 23 is praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So in other words, he's like, hey, do you know how rich you are? in Jesus Christ as a Christian, that you are in him and he is in you and you've been born again, new identity, you're a son of the king. Do you know how rich you are? I mean, I'm just gonna pray that your eyes are just open with, this, from the, with the spirit of wisdom and revelation because it is off the charts. Like, look, if Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, you know, adopted, just went and just took a kid off the streets in India, just picked him up, just bought him on a plane, legally adopted him, gave him his name. It would take a while for that child to understand the full ramification of what just took place. My goodness, my goodness gracious, who is my dad? What is Microsoft? What is all of this? Why do we have 100 homes? You know, I don't know if he does. You know, it's like, you know, what does that really mean? Does it mean? Okay, what does it really mean to be adopted as a son of Bill Gates? And, and like Paul in this chapter is just saying, I'm just gonna pray and that the Lord continues to open your eyes to the significance of how rich and how blessed you are. Look at verse three, next phrase, in the heavenly places. I mean, he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh my goodness, this is another phrase that's just tonnage of meaning. I mean, it's used five times in the book. It's a phrase that means the sphere of spiritual activities. And for now, let me say that in the heavenly places is in contrast to like earthly places. So in other words, these blessings, this identity is... Not on earth. It's not in some bank in Zurich. The source of these blessings is Almighty God. The reality of these blessings are in Him. And they're as secure as secure can be, protected and sure. And in the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna unpack them because there's just a tonnage of meaning. I mean, in verse four, he's like, I ch- he chose us. In verse five, predestined us to adoption. I mean, those are big, big monster ideas. A redemption through his blood made known as well that ultimately he would gather in one all things in Christ. Whoa! Christianity is not just a love rescue, take me out of an addiction from sensualism or drugs or stupidity or ego and forgive my sins and make me right before a holy God. I mean, it is that, but it's bigger than that because ultimately Jesus creates everything new in himself. It's like, oh my goodness gracious, awesome. And you're locked in it. I mean, you're sealed in it. I mean, there's something, have you ever been on an international flight before? I, I, I just, I'm thinking of LA, getting on an LL flight to Israel, straight shot to Tel Aviv. There's something weird, it, but it's awesome to sit in your seat and they shut the door and you start to taxi, you think, you know, next time that door opens, I'm going to be in a whole other place. And I'm just locked in, sealed into like the plane and, um, and, 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 my, and my destination is sure and there I'm going to be and stuff but it's not gonna open until I get there. It's like, you're, you as a Christian are in Christ. You're locked in him, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee that it's gonna happen, 
that everything is moving towards Christ and his glory, and you're going to share in it forever and ever and ever. Can I hear an amen to that? See, the key to understanding what the spiritual blessings are is how we get them. And notice the next few words, it's in Christ. I mean, 224 verses in the New Testament address, in Christ. And please hear this. Again, we're just scratching the surface this morning. But the blessings are not in the teachings of Christ. The blessings are not in some form of enlightenment or philosophy or in the example of Jesus, but they are in Christ. It's in a relationship with the Heavenly Father in Christ, the basis of which is unmerited favor, the grace of God. In fact, some say Jesus is grace. He's what grace is. Because the Bible says we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness we have all received, and, for, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Please hear this. It's like, we're just scratching the service. Look, all these blessings, this wealth, okay, is in, everybody say, is in Christ. It's in him. And as a Christian, you are in him. And Paul just emphasizes over and over and over again. I think we have a, I think we have, okay, like, verse three, in Christ. Verse four says we're in him. Verse six is like, in the, in the one he loves. Verse seven, in him we have redemption. It's like this big emphasis, in him, in him, in him, in him, in him. Okay. Just scratching the surface. Takes sometimes a little time to sink in. So let me bring another scripture to kind of help you understand this. It's 1 Corinthians 1.30. Just look at the details here. I think we have it up on the screen. It says, but of him you are, what's the next word? You are in Christ. Everybody say it. Jesus, right? Watch. Who became for us the wisdom from God. I mean, what is truth? I mean, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? I have no idea why I exist. Unless one who created me reveals it to me. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Um, hey, truth is Christ. Truth is Jesus. And righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, man, let him glory in the Lord. See, what helps this sink in more is if you asked what's not telling us, what that verse is not telling us. It doesn't read that Jesus becomes your teacher in redemption, justice, and righteousness, but rather he is your redemption and righteousness. He is. And if you have him, you have everything. You know, many people respect Jesus merely as a teacher or a model for life to be emulated. But think that through. If Jesus is merely a teacher, and I'm just, you know, I just want to really get the reality of in Christ and what that means, okay? Soaking in. So that's why I want to talk a little bit about this. But if Jesus is merely a teacher... Is he, is he really a good teacher? You say, what are you trying to say? Well, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, Jesus said, you have heard it in times past, thou shalt not murder. But he says, but I say to you, all right? 
and then proceeds to define murder as kind of this inside job of the heart. I'm going to paraphrase. That murder would be looking at another human being, devaluing them, created, devaluing them to, uh, in a way less than create the image of God. And I would look at another human being, I'd say, but that's white trash, and they're not worth anything. That's black trash, that's Arab trash, that's Hispanic trash, that's Asian trash, that's Jewish trash. I mean, that's just, I'm gonna demean my fellow man. I mean, that was Hitler. I mean, that was, he, Hitler just stomped all over the place in the name of Raqqa devaluing humanity, his fellow men. And if you have that type of attitude in your heart towards your fellow men, you've actually murdered them. And he talks about sexual purity, same thing. It's not just, you know, knocking on the door, having sexual, physical sexual relations with someone outside your spouse, but it's like, you know, if you want them in your bed inside your heart and mind, you're, you're crossing the line. Because he's saying who you really are is who you are inside, and God requires truth in the inward man. Now watch, that teaching is true, it is awesome, it is beautiful, but it crushes all of us. Because it's like, whoa, how do you get there? I mean, our eldest son in Southern California, well, now I have two sons in Southern California, I'm talking about Greg, he, he, he's at times hired by fathers down there to train their, their, his, their son, you know, the, the son, to... Uh, and skills in football as a quarterback. You know, our eldest son was, was, a, was a good quarterback. And Greg's objective would be that he wants to help develop skills in this kid um, because in order to be a really good quarterback, you have to have a certain skill level. I mean, it's a really skilled position. Now, Greg ended up being, he was an All-American in college. Prior to college, I remember we went to Las Vegas when he was in high school and he was invited there to work out with all these national quarterbacks. And the purpose was to flesh out the skill level of these guys and to identify the top QBs. There were 60 guys from the country. Ultimately, the camp was broken in four groups, the highest level down. By the grace of God, Greg made the highest group. And he was throwing with Colin Kaepernick, Matt Stafford, Jack, Jake Locker, Josh Freeman. I'm, you know, I'm sure you heard those guys before. But here's the thing. In order to make that group, one of the things they do is they have these kids, these quarterbacks. Okay, hey, can you, hey I'm talking about football this morning. Yeah, I worked it in somehow, right? But take a seven-step drop. You don't, you don't step up. You take one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, plant, and you throw a 15-yard out, cross fields, maybe 30 yards in, in the air. And it's like, like 1.5 seconds, 1.6 at max. It's just, it's just off your hands. And it really separates people big time. I'm just telling you. It just separates the good guys from the really, really good guys. Here's what I'm trying to get out. Okay, if, if Greg, our son, took a freshman in high school and he's, you know, he's paid to train this kid, to teach them, he says, look, this is what you've got to do. You've got to take a seven-step drop, keep your shoulders, you know, balance and stuff. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, balls off your hand. And it has to go 30 yards across the field and just like, boom. There it is. Just, you you got to do that. I'm just instructing you. You got to do that. That, that, that dad is going to fire him. That's not a good teacher. Because the teacher is going to help you get there. I mean, Jesus was more than merely a teacher. 
I mean, he certainly was a teacher and his teachings primarily identified who he is. But his standards of righteousness, love, justice were extremely high. He was, he was not merely a teacher. He was more than that. I mean, Mahatma Gandhi had this high regard for Jesus because of what Jesus modeled. And he saw the world enslaved to ego and selfishness. And that meant enslaved to popularity and what others think about your money and power. And Gandhi would say, that's why the world is so miserable. Christianity really helps because it provides this ultimate model of being nonviolent, deferring to others, giving up materialism, ego, power, and, and, and so model servanthood and, and sacrifice and forgiveness and love and dying for others. And Gandhi would say that model, that model actually is the key to the freedom that we're really looking for. But the reality is that model that we see in Jesus crushes me. How do I live up to that? You see, Jesus was more than merely an example on how to live. In fact, there's no way the teachings of Jesus Christ alone could possibly account for the effect of the gospel on history. The only reasonable explanation is that Jesus is alive. He lives. And he lives in his church, us. Can I hear another amen to that? I mean, in believers, he lives, he's alive. And he works through us. The only reasonable explanation is that Christians are in Christ. Now, I had this big idea that we could just refer to probably the next few studies together, but here's the big idea. To become a Christian is not simply having the Lord as your king to obey, though that involves that, or as an example to follow, though he is that, or even as a savior to be grateful to. Yes, he is that too. When you become a Christian, when you believe in him, when you rest in him, you are put in him. You're put in him and you now have his life and everything that Jesus has is yours. That is what Paul will be. That's what he's teaching. That's what the Lord is teaching us. That's what we're gonna be learning in the weeks to come. And as I mentioned, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what it means to be in Christ. But even scratching the surface, is it not awesome? And blessed be the God and Father who has given us all spiritual, every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, in Christ. And it's like, well, how, how do I know? If you ask this morning, well, how do I know that I'm actually in Christ, that I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, his unconditional love, his favor, his forgiveness, his presence, his redemptive work in my life, that all things are working for the good. Not all things are good, but all things are working for the good to those who love God and are called according to his person. How would I, how would I have the assurance of that? Honestly, because Jesus is glorious to you. Because he's won your heart. Because you adore him. It's more than just believing in the idea of grace, which is unmerited favor and God's riches at Christ's expense. It could be said, it becomes more personal. It becomes Jesus. It is Jesus. I mean, look at this phrase we have up here. It's like the praise of the glory of his, everybody say it, grace, okay, through, through his blood. I mean, th this 
This incredible recreation, this redemption is in Christ and it was, it was through his blood. Now we're talking really personally. Really, he gave his life for me. Listen, this last week was the anniversary of 9-11 and you know, one of the things I think of, of course, we all do is all those who lost their life, over 3,000, but I also think of all those heroes that police officers and firemen and those on the planes, you know, they're fighting the bad guys and stuff. You know, and thank God for them. And I was actually at a meeting in Southern California, not Southern California, in Sacramento, excuse me, and this last um, Thursday, and one of my favorite teachers, a, a Jewish brother, Dr. Michael Brown was teaching. And one of his family members was killed on 9-11. So it brought it a little closer to home. I remember watching in high school um, just the heroic rescue. Many of you remember 1982, that Flight 90. You remember that flight that, that skidded off the runway at Washington National Airport in the icy Potomac? You guys remember that? I mean, you can look it up on YouTube. It's, it, it just brought me to tears. I actually did to try to remember a few things to share with you. But, you know, one of, well, the, the hero that day was a man by the name of Arlen Williams. And he was, they're in icy waters in the river. It's just, oh, it's so horrible to watch. It's, you know, because it's just like paralyzing. Then they're just trying to get out. And Arlen is just pulling people and giving them like the, the you know, the, the, the ring to save them and helicopters down and he's just helping others. He's putting other people first. It's like one, two, three. But he's going, going down and he's grabbing these people and then all of a sudden you don't see him anymore. It's just, oh Lord, you know, he, lives, he's, he succumbs to, par- to being paralyzed by the waters. He just... And today you have... You have all of this honor to him. And there's an Arlen D. Williams Jr. Bridge in Washington, an Arlen D. Williams Jr. Elementary School in Matton, uh, Illinois, an Arlen D. Williams Jr. Endowed Professorship of Heroism at the Citadel. There's an Arlen Williams folk song and a made-for-TV movie. There's even an Arlen Williams shrine created by a woman in Japan. And so there should be. Now, Arland is no longer with us, but let me share something with you. The Lord is, and he gave himself for us. And as Timothy Keller said, this is not just the way you know you have received every spiritual blessing. It's the way the spiritual blessings actually work themselves into your life. There is no more powerful narrative structure. There's no greater moral beauty than a story of someone giving his life praise of the glory of his grace through his blood. It's like, how do you know you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ? Man, he's, he's glorious to you. He has won your heart. You know that you are in Christ because the redemptive work of Christ in his blood has won your heart. You worship him as the king, your king, savior, Lord, and friend. 
And in verse 5, and we're going to talk about this next week, but look, I mean, how do we know where he chose us, you know? How, how do you know that you are in Christ, that you have been chosen? And we're going to really look at that in an in-depth, in-depth way next week. But, you know, I've been starting to think about it. And I, I, to be frank with you, I haven't been chosen a lot in my life. Um, I mean, I'm so grateful that I live, and I, I'm not even so sure any parent chooses directly their children, you know, but in a way you, we do, because, you know, we want children, we want that blessing and stuff, but, you know, you never know what you're going to get type of a thing, right? You know, so it is a choosing, but it's kind of an indirect thing. <laughs> Listen, I, there was a time, well, Stephanie chose me as well here, and we'll talk about that next week, but I, I proposed to her. Well, it could be said I chose her to be my bride. She also chose me to be her husband. I... But I'll tell you, the day I proposed to her, and I, I, I told her that I wanted to go through life with her and experience life, all its dynamics and things. What do you know when you're 22? But I'm so grateful she came. I, I had in my pocket this demonstration of a guarantee that if she accepted it, I would put it on her hand and I will show up December 20th at Calvary Chapel and I will marry you. And, and we're going to take each other's hand and, and walk you know, into the sunset of life until we see the face of the Lord Jesus. And I was ready to, she said yes, man, I was going to get that thing on her finger as quick as possible, you know what I mean? And I was like, okay, I had this like guarantee that I love you and I'm going to commit myself to you and, and I'm going to be your husband until we see the Lord face to face. If you look down in verse 13, jump down there real quick. It says, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the, what's the next word you guys? Guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, hey, the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells you and his spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God is a, it's like an engagement ring. It's a guarantee that you are in Christ. You're on the plane, if you will, sealed up and everything is moving towards his glory. You say, Greg, I'm not so sure that I have that confidence. I got the ring, so to speak, this guarantee, the indwelling of the Lord in my life. I would just ask you, do you want it? I mean, do you want this love and this relationship? Because the Bible teaches no one can even come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit is drawing them. If we go back to verse 20, we're almost done, and we really haven't left it, but as we unpack the verse, it forces us, doesn't it, to view our life not from a human perspective, but from a heavenly perspective, because we are in Christ. It gives us a correct view of our life. Our life no longer becomes informed by silly ideas, but greater values, and, and we have just such a greater security because we're in the Lord and he's working out his plan in our life. And, and therefore we can say, as Paul writes in verse 11, in him also we've obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of his will who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We can, we can like say a big amen to Romans 8 where it's like, and we know 
all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Not that all things are good, as I mentioned, but that because there are a lot of bad things in the world, but, but he turns them around in some redemptive way. Just like takes lemons and makes lemonade. And I can say that with confidence. I mean, actually, actually what the, what the Lord wants me to do is live life less like I'm on a, stuck on a freeway. And that's determining my outlook and, and, and my sense of well-being. He wants me to have a much more accurate view of who I really am, who I really am is the fact that I'm in Christ as a Christian. Can I hear another amen to that? For Joseph to say, but as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for the good in order to bring it about as it is today to save many people alive. The Lord wants you to see your life accurately, which means from a heavenly perspective in Christ. Let me just ask one more question. Look, seriously, if you, this is a good question. If you were to like, you know, God forbid, but if you were to die today, okay, I'm not expecting that on anybody, but if you were to die today and you were standing before the Lord, and he were to ask you, you know, look, wh- why should you spend eternity with me in glory? Why? Why should I let you into heaven? Now, now hear this. If you answer, look, here's why, because I, I did more good things than, than not so good things, or because I was sincere in my beliefs, or, I, or because, you know what, I know I'm a sinner and you're merciful. Or even if you say, I'll tell you why you should let me in, because God, forgiving is your job. <laughs> All of those answers reflect a person who doesn't understand what Christianity is. I mean, the only answer is, I'll tell you why I have confidence that I'm going to heaven because it's in because I'm I'm in Him and, and I'm redeemed by Him and in Him my sins are gone and in Him I'm accepted and apart from Him I am nothing. It's because I am in Christ and He is my hope and He is my glory. And I just want to, I just want you to know He is here. He loves you. He's reaching out to you. I mean, he's like proposing to you, actually. He wants to put a ring on you. He wants to secure your life. And, 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 and I'll tell you, we, as we go through this chapter, as we're just beginning to scratch the surface this, this morning, but as we go through it, we're, we're gonna just going to grow in a greater understanding what reality is. And therefore, we're going to see our lives a whole lot more accurately. And the fact that Jesus hung blood, gave his life on the cross, paid the debt of our sin, took every stinking sin upon himself in human history, resurrected from the dead. Boy, that really, you talk about, you talk about a change in the way you think. That awakens us that, whoa, there's a lot at stake here. The choices that we make and what we believe. Because if God sent his son, and he stepped down from heaven and became a man and suffered as he did, he did it for a good reason. We said this before, you know, we put billions of dollars in the fight of cancer, billions of dollars in the fight of terrorism, defense. I mean, we're talking about Almighty God coming down, reaching out to us, paying a debt he didn't owe, that we might know a forgiveness we, we don't deserve. Boy, there must be a, the ramifications that play must be really huge. So I pray, come to Christ.